Sea level rise is expected to eat away at much of the Chesapeake Bay coastline. But what about the historical sites? Welcome to Delmarva Today. This is Don Rush. This morning, we present a special edition of the Chesapeake Uncharted podcast, produced by the Bay Journal. From the Chesapeake Bay Journal, your source for independent environmental reporting, this is Chesapeake Uncharted. I'm Jeremy Cox. On today's episode... So many of the the nation, and really anywhere you go in the world, historic resources sit at the water's edge because that's where transportation happened, that's where commerce happened. So it makes sense that you would have historic resources that sit very close to that water's edge. And so we have to figure out ways in which we protect those resources, particularly significant resources that are threatened by an ever-changing climate, sea level rise, and everything that comes along with that. Nicholas Redding is president and CEO of Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit dedicated to saving and restoring historic places. Places like the one we're standing beside. It's a two-story building called the Burtis House, It was built around 1880, but if I'm being honest, it doesn't exactly pop on the landscape. A historical survey conducted in 1983 seems to agree, calling it a quote, minor vernacular structure. But all this overlooks the house's defining characteristic. For that, I turn to Sarah Elfreth. Uh, And you are a state senator? Yes, for District 30, which is Annapolis, the suburbs, and then all of uh, South Anne Arundel County. Elfrith has made it her mission to help save this utilitarian structure right where it is on the historic Annapolis waterfront. The Burtis House is one of the last surviving, um, in its original location, Waterman's House. This neighborhood uh, behind us used to be called Hell Point, which was a lot of African Americans, Filipino immigrant, uh, Italian immigrants lived here, uh, and a lot of working watermen. And so we're, it faces right on the city dock, and all of the, this dock used to be working waterfront, where watermen would pull up and unload their, their, what their catch for the day but integral to the culture and history of Annapolis. And so this is kind of the last vestige of what life looked like back then. That report I mentioned before was put together by the Maryland Historical Trust. One section has a heading that reads, quote, threat to structure. Below that is a menu of seven options, no threat, zoning, roads, development, deterioration, alteration, and other. Carefully considering this list of perils, the historian checked the box next to the word development. Oh, how much the world has changed over the past 40 years. Now the biggest threat, Redding says, is climate change. This place, just like anything else along this dock, is significantly threatened by the unpredictable climate, in particular sea level rise. Here on City Dock, we have sunny day flooding. So it's a sunny day right now. Fortunately, we don't have um, any flooding to speak of at this moment, but but it happens, and this building gets inundated, and so what's actually going to happen is it's going to be elevated into the air to save it. When we talk about climate change, we often limit our thinking to the present, how things are now, or to the future, how things will be. But what about the past? Across the Bay watershed, Historical places and buildings face unprecedented threat, damage, and even wholesale destruction from climate change. And when they're gone, 
we lose not just the ruins of an old fort or the remnants of a Native American community, we lose a part of the human story, a story that shaped where and how we live today. Today on Chesapeake Uncharted, we spotlight a few of these places. Some are oh so close to being saved. Others, unfortunately, have slipped beyond our grasp. Tangier Island in Virginia is in danger of going underwater from sea level rise within the next 50 years. What might their future look like? Well, Tangier residents don't have to look far to find one possible preview. But what are we looking at here? William Eskridge is showing me his impressive sea glass collection. Usually, you're looking to find well-polished shards of glass on Chesapeake Bay beaches. But here, displayed on his enclosed porch on Tangier Island, is one example after another of whole glass bottles. Old hazy bottles of Coke, baking powder. Eskridge is a retired electric company worker and elder brother to Tangier's mayor. One of his favorite pastimes is collecting the history concealed in the sand along the margins of the island. Are these remnants, these bottles and everything, remnants of communities that have since vanished? Yeah, oh yeah. Well, some of it here on Tangier, which, uh, but the communities, but the two, the community that's a lot of where a lot of these are collected from is the community has vanished up on the north end of the island. Mm -hmm. They call it the, the the name of it was upwards, but there was maybe a hundred people living up there at one time. Carol Pruitt Moore also is passionate about sea glass. I see a lot of sea glass here. A lot of sea glass. All this was picked up on the um, upwards beach. She has ancestors who lived in Canaan, the small settlement at the northern tip of the upwards. By 1929, the community was deserted. People had either moved their houses to Tangier or left them to nature's whims. For years, the upwards had been struggling. It was too far from civilization. After a while, there just weren't enough students to support the school or enough congregants for the church. But historians and locals agree that erosion hastened the community's doom. Today, much of the upwards is underwater. Virtually all signs of the community are gone. But every now and then, Moore said, she finds a shard of glass that sheds more light on what life used to be like there. So this is the remnants of their lives, so I pick up what I can. I have, I have lots. I found those last week, I guess. And I was just washing them out today. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty prolific. Yeah, it is. You know, and every time I pick up a piece, it's not just a bottle, it's I wonder what they were doing. You know, what did they use this for? What were they making? You know, what was what was in this bottle? What happens when something is supposed to last forever, but the climate has other plans? Southern Dorchester County, on the eastern shore of Maryland. All right, we're recording. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> Ed, Jeremy, and Diane Stecker. I'm going to do a Step handshake aboard. slash helping sure. me down thing. Yeah. Yeah. There Ed, we go. Ed Dryden and Diane Stecker. Hey, Diane. Nice to, nice to meet you. Nice. All right. Ed's my go-to um, captain. Yeah, all right. Four of us pile into a boat. For this segment, I'm leaning on one of my Bay Journal colleagues. I'm Dave Harp. I'm a photographer for the Bay Journal and a filmmaker for the Bay Journal. Harp is a photojournalism lifer. 
He started as a teenager in the 1960s with the Hagerstown Morning Herald, joining his father, the paper's executive editor, in the business. Harp moved on to the Baltimore Sun but left in the 1980s to pursue his passion for nature photography. He has produced several books and documentaries about the bay and its watershed, often working with his friend and former Sun reporter, Tom Horton. And for the past several years, Harp has been the lead photographer for the Bay Journal. And uh, you kind of know the bay, right? Well, yes. I mean, I've spent most of my life messing around creeks and guts and marshes in the bay. I don't get out on the main stem much anymore, but I do spend a lot of time upstream where, where life exists, you know, to me. There are more animals and flora and fauna. Computer model projections show that with an expected 2.1-foot sea level rise by 2100, most of the southern half of Dorchester County will be underwater. So a lot of what we see now, you know, it's, it's low marsh to begin with, and uh, it's going to get lower. You know, it's going to go under. It's a warm afternoon in the early fall. Besides Harp and I, the boat's crew consists of two of his longtime friends, Ed Dryden and Diane Stecker. Today, we're searching for a place that Harp stumbled across three or four years ago. As he tells it, he was out paddling with a friend on Charles Creek one day. For fun, basically, and we just turned this corner and um, there's this headstone sitting up on the bank. So there was an old graveyard back in there. It was just a small family graveyard, not much different than the small, intimate formations found in farm fields or on the margins of forest. Except this one was right on the perilous edge of a stream bank. Most of the headstones were still on land, but some had begun sliding down the slope into the creek. Harp took some photographs and left that day. This was his first time trying to find it again. It turned out to be no easy feat. Okay, we're, we're lost. <laughs> okay, uh, I couldn't help but notice you're not using an, an app. This is actual paper. <laughs> this is paper. This is actually, this is uh, Google Maps okay. printed out. So, okay. so, okay, here. Here's. We, we came down here, went in here. Yeah, so it, I think we're supposed to be further up that way, but you tell, I mean, you. I think you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah, because that's that big creek we just passed. Okay, let's go up that way. Yeah. Let me look at this little area right sure, up here, though. Sure, of course. Take just off. go straight ahead here and just poke in. Okay. We motor a bit to the south, past ghost forests and salt marshes and duck blinds. No luck. Well, let's try going back north again. Maybe we missed it. Nothing seems to look quite right. Harp has the map in front of him, but its inky lines don't quite match up with the contours he's seeing now from the water. Finally, he announces this has to be the right spot, but it still doesn't quite look right. You say it's been three, four years since three you were here last? Three four years yeah. since we were here last, yeah. I don't see any evidence of uh, was graves. Was it a line of graves? It was like a little group of graves, and then there, there were ones coming down. Just go around the corner a yeah, little more. 
It looks. What is? Is that just a stump there? That white thing? Is that a gravestone? See that white thing? Oh yeah. Hmm. Pull in here. Let me jump out. That looks like styrofoam, but. But it wasn't styrofoam. No, that's a grave. Really, it's really eroded since I was here last. That's amazing. None of the marble headstones are standing anymore. Only four remain. From the looks of it, somebody's taken it upon themselves to heap them together next to a freshly fallen persimmon tree. Our little group is just puzzled by the morbid sight. The best we can figure is that the stones were sliding into the water, or already submerged, and this was someone's attempt at saving them. Harp remembers a crypt standing among the trees. It's nowhere to be found either. This is definitely the same place. Oh, we found it. But boy, it's gone. It, I mean, it's gone. I think, I think what I, where I was walking three or four years ago was out there somewhere. You're, you're pointing right offshore here. Yeah, I'm just out of... of 20, 30 feet offshore, I think, uh, used to be land not that many years ago. A loss of 20 to 30 feet of land. It just doesn't seem possible. You can hear the shock in Harp's voice. He hunches over one of the markers, trying to make out the engraved letters. So here's a guy who died in 1850, and his name was Johnson. Johnson was the family name of the, of the graves that I photographed. Uh. And I forget the guy's name now, but it was Johnson. And his wife's grave, his grave was underwater. And his wife's grave was sliding down the, the hill mm. when I was here. And I was in the water filming his grave, and, and her grave was sliding down the hill to my right. So, yeah. Wow. We should have put a stake in the ground. <laughs> See, sure. Did a mark. I just stood there wondering... How can so much change in so little time? I asked my colleague. Really over the course of three or four years, does that make sense to you? Easily. You know, if you get a, if you get a couple storms and you get the right fetch and you get, you know, erosion, and of course with rising seas, erosion is exacerbated, you know, it just happens faster. So, um, and, and I'm looking, at, looking up now and uh, dead trees, there's a dead persimmon tree right there. Um, you know, all these trees will be dead in a few more years. As far as erosion goes, I'm surprised there'd be that much wave action here. We're, we're kind of tucked back behind Hooper's well, Island. You, you, when you're coming from the northwest in the wintertime, that's when you get most of the big uh, wave action. Wow. For these people, this was no final resting place on dry land. Now it's underwater. We squint hard at the water where we think the missing headstones should be, but it's no use. It's just too murky to see beneath the surface. What has been lost here, Harp tells our gathering, is nothing short of sacred. Yeah, I, I think it's sort of sad that these people's history is going to be gone. Yeah. As we climb back into the boat, I turn and look back at where the water meets the shore. The waves are small but relentless where the dead had been buried. 
Now even the land itself is dying. Foot by foot. Year by year. For our next example of history meets climate change, let's stay in Dorchester County. This time at the Visitor Center of the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad National Historical Park. My name is Nita Satina. I am the superintendent of the Maryland Park Service, and it is my great pleasure to welcome all of you to the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park. A press conference to announce an archeological discovery. We gather here because our discovery and understanding of the life and times of Harriet Tubman continues to be revealed and continues to inspire us. Then Satina trades places behind the microphone with the highest elected official in the vicinity for the big reveal. Please welcome Lieutenant Governor Rutherford. Archaeologists uncovered evidence of a home site and its historic artifacts dating back to the early 1800s, early to mid-1800s. Today, I'm excited to announce that our archaeologists have confirmed that this site was once the home of Ben Ross and may have been where Harriet Tubman spent her early years. Lost for over 150 years, but now found, the home where Harriet Tubman's father lived. Harriet Tubman, who escaped slavery here in Dorchester County in 1849, and returned several times to guide others to freedom. For several years, we believed that Mr. Ross harvested trees on the property and sold the timber. And the timber was then transported to shipyards by free black mariners to use to make ships in Baltimore. Harriet Tubman worked alongside her father as a teenager and historians believe that Tubman learned to navigate the land and waterways she would later traverse to lead enslaved people to freedom. Julie Shablitsky, an archaeologist with the Maryland Department of Transportation, led the search, which began shortly after the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service acquired the property in 2019. He probably had a building set on brick piers and within that, and associated with that site, we're finding drawer pulls from his, his bureau. We're finding a button from his shirt. We're finding pipe bowls and pipe stems from what he smoked. All that in this location. The 2,600-acre tract was purchased for $6 million to augment the nearby Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge, a key wintering ground for migratory birds and ducks. But as Marsha Pradines who oversees the Bay Region's refuges, said, We also heard that perhaps, just perhaps, Ben Ross's homestead might be on the parcel. We weren't sure. Ben Ross had been freed from slavery five years after the 1836 death of his owner, Anthony Thompson. Thompson also bequeathed him 10 acres of forested land. Finding the home site entailed a combination of grit and luck. Not to mention that everyone involved was in a race against climate change. Julie Shablitsky and her team battled mosquitoes and mud as they dug hole after hole in the mucky shoreline. They dug 100 holes, 500 holes, 1,000 holes. Still, no luck. 
I was getting a little frustrated. I'm like, where is this place? And, and then I thought, well, I have one more tool in my toolkit, and that's a metal detector. I'm going to go and see if I can go out and find perhaps nails that are associated with a building. So within five minutes, I'm jumping on the side of the road with my metal detector. I got this beep, 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 and I, and I dug it out, and it looked like a shot. I thought, is this a shotgun shell signature? But no, and I dug, and what came up was this coin from 1808, a 50-cent Liberty, ironically, um, had 50-cent piece. And this, to me, was my clue that we're getting close. 1808 was Ben Ross and Rick Green, Harriet's parents, date that they were married and began their family. Incredible, right? They returned a few months later with renewed vigor. Soon, they were finding artifacts left and right, all dating from the early 1800s, all located where they would expect to find them, based on where historical documents indicated the house should be. So with that, with the artifacts, the archaeology, the evidence of a building, and just the location, knowing he worked in, in the timbered wetlands, those multiple lines of evidence tell us unequivocally that this is the home of Ben Ross. Time for a climate change reality check. The area around the home site is already transitioning from dry land to marsh due to sea level rise, Pradines told me. The water table was so high in the excavation area that water filled up many of the archaeologists' test pits. They were racing against time. This particular area had the highest water table by far. And just by the fact that there's Phragmites growing everywhere, it tells you that it's already marsh. So if it had waited another couple years, I don't know that they would have found it at all. Prating said that officials are working to improve the road that leads to the site so the public can visit it. Down the line, as the water continues to rise, the nature of that access might change, she said. Maybe boardwalks will be installed to carry people over wet spots. Maybe they will be standing on an observation platform overlooking an expanse of water where the site used to be. In 2017, the Maryland and National Park Services jointly opened the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad National Historical Park southwest of Cambridge. It's a few miles away from the Ben Ross cabin site, but still part of the landscape that Tubman knew well. From a development perspective, the scenery has changed remarkably little since her day. Farms, wetlands, and forests that she would have seen are still here in some form. How much longer they exist in a climate change world, though, is an open question. It is important that we continue to uncover parts of our history that we can learn from, especially when we can do this before time and other forces wash it away. Let's circle back to Annapolis, where officials are preparing to put up a fight on behalf of their history. An expensive fight. The Burtis House is only the beginning. So the city dock historically was a, a waterman's area uh, where the, the, the boats would come in from the Chesapeake and offload all of their, uh, their seafood that they were able to acquire. And, and so it was really a working dock historically here. It's, converted somewhat where it's now more recreational vehicles, but it has a long history as a working dock. It's right in the center of town, right in the center of historic Annapolis. Annapolis City Manager David Gerald, as part of Mayor Gavin Buckley's administration, is overseeing a $50 million project to completely remake the city dock. 
The Burtis House right next door is a separate undertaking. The plan for the city dock is to tear up an existing parking lot and replace it with grass and create a new parking garage on higher ground. A flood wall will be installed around the dock, providing up to six feet of protection from rising water. And there'll be pop-up barriers on top of that that go up another two feet. So during like storms, when there's going to be a storm surge, we mechanically operate those to lift them and then they provide eight feet of protection. The current flood situation is untenable, Gerald told me. So what happens is uh, when we have high tides, the, the water backs up through the storm drain system that, that, that uh, allows stormwater to convey from, from the land to, to the water. And so when it backs up, it floods the local streets. Uh, it used to happen 50 years ago, it would be three or four times a year. Now it's more like 50 to 60 times a year. And when it does, it has an impact on the downtown area. Some of the streets are closed and uh, parking is difficult in the city dock area. And so it has, it has some pretty major impacts on, on the economy here. If nothing is done, Gerald said, that flooding will happen almost every day by the year 2080. So that's why the administration is doing something about it now. The dock itself isn't of historic value. It's been rebuilt several times. Nicholas Redding of Preservation Maryland said that its importance lies in what it represents. He envisions the Burtis House and the city dock serving as a combined focal point, a contact station, in his words, for a future Chesapeake Bay National Park, if such a park is ever created. I mean, what better place to do it than at the water's edge, in a place that's historic, but also in a place that's been saved from a really modern issue. I mean, there's just so many pieces at play here. Not everyone is happy with the plan to save City Dock. Doug Myers, I'm the Maryland Senior Scientist at Chesapeake Bay Foundation. The Bay Foundation is the Bay region's largest environmental group. If it doesn't support your project, you have a formidable foe. And that's where the City Dock project stands right now. Myers was part of a commission under an earlier mayoral administration that also tackled the city dock problem. But it didn't reach the blueprint stage. Conceptually, it put forward a softer approach with constructed wetlands and living shorelines. The boat slips would have been raised out of harm's way, but this was no save-everything approach. You evaluate buildings that are at risk and determine which ones can be saved, which ones can be elevated, and which ones actually have to go. He calls the current plans a colossal waste of money. Worse, it will set a bad precedent for resilience projects elsewhere, he said. It's going to make other communities around Maryland think that this is what coastal resilience is all about, um, walling off your cities and displacing water to less important commercially uh, areas to uh, flood them instead. For his part, Gerald pushes back on the criticism that the project will shunt flood water onto other low-lying areas. Any water flowing off the area is a drop in the bucket compared to the water holding capacity of the bay and other waterways in the area, he told me. So much friction over how best to proceed. I got to thinking here. History and the environment they're not so different, right? I was curious to see what Redding thought about that. Right. It, it seems like uh, it's a, a good intersection, I think, history and, and climate thinking, because both have that shared common ground of thinking in terms of decades, if not centuries, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think in the I think one of the shared things between the environmental and the preservation community is um, it's always a long game, right? You're you're thinking about the next generation. Um, preservation. One of my favorite quotes about preservation is that it's it's a a conversation in the present about the what's going to happen in the future and how we can benefit the future. The funny thing is that if we have meaningful climate conversations in the present and they lead to a better future, one of the things we might end up saving is our past. Thanks to Greenfin Studio, which combines creativity and communication savvy with scientific insight. Chesapeake Uncharted is brought to you by The Bay Journal your source for independent environmental news in the Chesapeake region. Production for this episode was by me, Jeremy Cox. The story was edited by Laura Lutz. Our marketing and advertising director is Jackie Kane. You can find more episodes of Chesapeake Uncharted on your favorite streaming service or at chesapeakeuncharted.com. This has been Jeremy Cox. Take care. This has been a special edition of Delmarva Today featuring the podcast Chesapeake Uncharted. This is Don Rush. Thanks for listening.